0: You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant news-making issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP. <music>
1: Today's headlines tend to focus on whether or not North Korea will denuclearize, or now that the U.S. has withdrawn formally from the Iran deal, will we see a resumption of efforts to build its nuclear capability. While these issues are important, my guest today says that we should be paying more attention to the risks associated with cyber weapons. David Singer, the New York Times national security correspondent and senior writer, is the author of The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. This book, not unlike his prior bestseller, Confront and Conceal, draws on in-depth reporting that Sanger is best recognized for, having been a member of three teams that have won the Pulitzer Prize. When one thinks back to the number of national security stories that he has broken, you might even feel a little bit of sympathy for the government official who hears Sanger say, I'm working on an investigative piece that The New York Times is planning to publish tomorrow morning. Welcome David, it's great to
2: have you back in Dallas. Great to be back here.
1: Well, I think we have some good timing because just a few hours ago, the White House made an announcement and John Bolton, I guess, had a press call. Can you bring us up to date on that?
2: So the White House has turned out uh, national cybersecurity policy. The policy is a lot like previous policies you have seen from uh, the Obama administration and before that the Bush administration. But what is particularly interesting about it is that a few weeks ago, President Trump signed a new presidential directive aimed at the United States Cyber Command, which is sort of the newly elevated military cyber unit, and to a lesser degree, the National Security Agency. They're run by the same general, Paul Makassoni, that lifted a lot of the previous restraints on how they could use offensive cyber weapons. And mm-hmm. in typical government form, they have kept it classified. And so they're stepping on a lot of their own deterrent uh, ability here. And one of the arguments of the perfect weapon is that part of the trouble we've run into in cyber is that it's way too classified.
1: And in fact, that was the first question I was going to ask you before today's news broke. That really was a theme of your book that the government perhaps needs to be much more transparent. But doesn't that give our adversaries more knowledge about what we know and can do?
2: Well, first of all, they've seen some of what we can do. We've attacked Iran's nuclear centrifuges and blown up a thousand of them. We've attacked uh, North Korea's missile programs to sort of disable some of their missiles in testing. We've attacked ISIS. In each of these, they've learned a fair bit about US capability. The big question is U.S. willpower when we're going to go use these and U.S. ability to attribute an incoming cyber attack so that we could turn around the way we could in the nuclear era and say this missile is coming from such and such a place. Because until you figure figured that out, your ability to retaliate is pretty limited. Mm-hmm. The nuclear <coughs> era gives us some clues about how to go do this. If you think back to the 50s and 60s, Everything about how we made nuclear weapons, who had the authority to launch them, where they were located, was kept secret. But we had a very big, rollicking debate about how and when we would use nuclear weapons and ended up in a completely different place than it started because we started off with General MacArthur wanting to use them against the North Koreans and the Chinese. We ended up, by the late 80s and early 90s, saying, no, we're only going to use nuclear weapons as a matter of national survival. That was because we had a big public debate about what made us safer. And it was
1: also mutual deterrence. I mean. And
2: it was. Now, it was harder to do deterrence in the cyber age because there were only a few nuclear powers because it's expensive to do nuclear weapons. You need uranium and plutonium and millions of dollars of, of equipment. In the cyber world, you need some you know, teenagers, some 20-somethings, some stolen code from the mm-hmm. NSA, and there's, boy, there's plenty of that around, and a good case of Red Bull, and you're, you're on the way, which is why 35 or 40 countries now have a pretty sophisticated cyber capability.
1: One doesn't think of North Korea as having, at least I don't, as a strong educational institutions, and yet they've been able to build up really a very effective cyber terrorist, and we've seen that happen, of course, with Sony. How have they developed this capability?
2: Well, first of all, as I said, the barriers to entry are low. Um, Secondly, a lot of their uh, cyber offensive operators operate from outside the country. When you went through the recent indictment that the uh, Justice Department did in the case of the attack, the 2014 attack on Sony, which destroyed 70% of their computer capability, you discovered that the attacks were launched from China, from Southeast Asia. So the North Koreans have figured out that they can do a lot of damage working outside the country. And this is one of the reasons that it's so hard to attribute an attack. And more
1: dangerous to retaliate.
2: And much more dangerous to retaliate. You don't want to start a cyber war with the Chinese because some North Korean hackers happen to be hanging out at an island resort, you know, sitting on the beach with their laptops.
1: So how do you handle that? Is it sort of the Bush policy you're either with us or against us?
2: You really don't want to go that route with a country that can escalate the battle pretty rapidly. And this is one of the reasons it's so dangerous to have companies, as opposed to countries, begin to retaliate against uh, the people they believe are attacking them. In 2009, Google was attacked by some Chinese state actors. And Google's engineers, no surprise, figured out where the attack was coming from a lot faster than the U.S. government did. Hmm. And they really wanted to go after the attackers, melt down their server. Until someone stepped in and said, whoa, slow down here a little bit. Because if you're the Chinese, you don't know if that attack's coming from a company, whether it's directed by the United States government. And you could well get on an escalation ladder you can't get off.
1: So it's this new policy, would we have reacted differently, do you think, with what happened to Sony after the well, film? The,
2: f- the first thing is... We might have acted more aggressively, and I argue... Because as
1: you said, if if commandos had come into Sony and had destroyed 70% of the computers, we certainly would have...
2: Would have done something. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of this is the visual aspect of a traditional attack versus the invisible aspect of a cyber attack. So if you had blown up the Sony computer systems by planting TNT under the computer center and Everybody had tuned into CNN and seen smoke rising over the Hollywood Hills. I think it would have been pretty hard for any president to avoid you know, yeah. making something blow up in Pyongyang. Absolutely. But when you do a cyber attack, it takes months, sometimes years, to figure out where it came from. The indictment against the actors in North Korea only came a few weeks ago, four and a half years after the attack.
1: So one of the challenges, it seems, is you really don't know when the attack is going to occur. And yet the threat of it, the embedment of the virus, could be put in many years before to be, to be triggered.
2: What's that tell you? If you're inside the NSA or U.S. Cyber Command, it tells you you can't just sit back and turn on your radar and hope to see the incoming. Because if it takes milliseconds to launch an attack, you need to know about it long before it's launched which is why the United States puts implants in foreign computer systems around the world. But the if you big t- question is, when do you trigger those?
1: Yeah, because if you let them know that we know it's there, then they're going to react differently as well, or it might trigger it.
2: You might, which is one of the reasons that we need to have a pretty clear policy about where we put these uh, implants in and how we intend to use them. Because think of it on the other side, every time you pick up the paper and you read the Russians have implants sitting in our utility systems, people sort of say, oh my God, they're gonna turn off all the power. Well, seeing the implant doesn't quite tell you what the intent is. And when we put implants in their systems, we say, oh, don't worry, we're just doing it defensively. We're preparing the battlefield if we ever got attacked. I'm not sure the Russians would believe that, or the Iranians, or the North Koreans, or the Chinese.
1: Are you comfortable where we are now?
2: No, not even close. Why not? I'm not comfortable because 85% of the targets in the United States are in private hands. And as a result, the defenses for each of those are quite different. You know, The big banks and utilities have done a pretty good job investing heavily in defense. But small community banks or small utilities, they don't have the money to go off and do this. Any more than you'd have the uh, resources to go build your own email system and defend it against every kind of incoming attacker. That's why we all use Gmail. We'll let Google pay that money, right? The second reason I'm I'm worried is that we are nowhere close to the kind of deterrence theory and the kind of defenses and resilience that we built up against nuclear or chemical or biological weapons. And we're at the very early stages of this technology. And one of the reasons that I wrote The Perfect Weapon was to explain how little we understand at this point about how it can be used, or what it might look like 10 or 15 years from now.
1: And what about a framework of international law to regulate, which you do have with nuclear weapons?
2: We have a framework of treaties with nuclear weapons. Treaties probably won't work in the cyber world because there's simply too many actors, states, criminals, teenagers, all kinds of different terror groups. Most of those don't sign up to treaties. But there may be a utility in having a sort of digital Geneva Convention, as Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, calls it. Something designed to set a common set of standards about how civilians should be protected. So you and I could go off and put together a pretty good list of what might be off limits. Mm-hmm. election systems hospitals, hospitals nurseries. Yeah. but i would suspect that the intel community would probably come down pretty hard on any president getting ready or any secretary of state to negotiate that and say do we want to limit our own options supposing by affecting a presidential election abroad we could avoid a war supposing by turning off all the lights in iran as we were planning to do in an operation codenamed." Nitro Zeus, had we ever gone into a conflict with Iran, we could prevent actually a shooting war. So Well,
1: that's one of the things you said, the war could be over before the first shot is fired.
2: And that's one of the big lessons here. and It's also one of the reasons that the military would be very cautious about the US entering these kind of agreements.
1: We have just another minute before you get to go meet our members, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about the relationship that you see, say, between the corporate sector and the government. And obviously, a company like Raytheon or Lockheed has a different relationship than, say, uh, Apple. Right. And Tim Cook has taken a very strong stance.
2: And Google's got employees who don't want to put together programs that will be used by the government for building better drones or artificial intelligence that may be used for defense purposes. So in the Cold War, those companies that you mentioned, you know, Raytheon right. or Boeing or others, their main client was the U.S. government. And Mm -hmm. there was no question they were American companies and American companies first. For Google and Microsoft and Apple, Facebook, their main business is outside the United States.
1: Selling to consumers all over. And it's
2: consumers. And those consumers don't want to believe that those companies are basically a conduit for the U.S. government to be able to conduct espionage or offensive operations in their countries. So they're under a very different set of, of structures and incentives than the military complex was in the Cold War. And we've got to get used to that. That's not going to change. Mm-hmm. So we have to figure out how we're going to alter our national security policy to fit the reality rather than just try to change the reality.
1: Tough challenge in front of us. Very tough. I want to thank you for being with us. The book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. I really enjoyed reading it. Thanks so much, David, for being with us.
0: Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.